God bless everybody and good morning. So yes, um, we celebrate this as Reformation Sunday because it's the closest Sunday to the actual day where uh, Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis. And I would say that um, it's just a, a very interesting story. And then what comes out of that, I'm just going to give a little brief into uh, what happened there. And then we're going to speak about the two pivotal issues of the Protestant Reformation. So let's pray to the Lord that he would bless this time and that he would give us wisdom and discernment to see the truths that are brought out from the scriptures. And that's why we protested against what would eventually be the apostate Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> so let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that this day reminds us, this Reformation Sunday, reminds us that the most important thing is knowing who you really are. And then number two, going into the scriptures that teach us who you really are. How are we to worship you, Lord? How are we to know you if we don't know who you truly are? That's why you've revealed it to us in your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for this. We thank you, Lord, for this time that as a corporate spiritual family, we come together to worship you and to read and know you better and to then express our love once again with the songs the reading of your word, and the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. So please, Lord, bless this time, and may it be for your glory, as that sola says, soli del gloria. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so in the lead up to Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Thesis, this is just going to be a very brief overview of it. But at the time that uh, this happened and kind of previously to the years, uh, to that year that he posted it, uh, there was a pope, his name was Leo X, and he had found that the revenues, in other words, the profits and the money that was, that was in the church had been exhausted, it had pretty much been removed because they had spent so much in the vast projects that they had done and building and, and just all these things. And you know they were pretty much, some of them were taking it for themselves too. And in his own extravagant spending, he noticed, we got to do something about this. So he tried everything possible to increase his finances once again. And that is what eventually led to the sale of indulgences. Now, that's been a term that has been used all the time uh, when speaking about why the church protested against the Pope and all those that were serving the Pope. This, I think, is a very good sum of what indulgences are and more not so, not so much into the technical aspect of it, but what it really comes about from it. And this is from William Robertson in his uh, History of the Reign of the Emperor Charles V. He states, According to the doctrine of the Romish Church, all the good works of the saints over and above those which were necessary towards their own justification 
are deposited together with the infinite merits of Jesus Christ in one inexhaustible treasury. So you can just imagine that there's this, let's say, account, and this account has all those merits that can then be applied to people, depending on, on the circumstance and depending on what the rules are. He states, the keys of this were committed to St. Peter and to his successors, the popes, who may open it at pleasure, and by transferring a portion of this superabundant merit to any particular person for a sum of money, of course, we can't forget about that money, right? The love of money, right? We all know that verse. May convey to him either the pardon of his own sins or a release for anyone in whose happiness he is interested from the pains of purgatory. So this is where you pay money, so either your sins are removed and pardoned and you are free to go to heaven, or for some loved one that you believe uh, didn't have enough, I guess, merit, and is now in purgatory paying for those sins so they could eventually make it to heaven. So this treasury, then you would pay some money and they would release these merits that are deposited in there and then these people would be able to go to heaven and experience the glory and the happiness of being with our Lord. Many problems there and we could make multiple sermons and have a series just on all those issues. But what we want to touch in is again giving an overview of why Martin Luther did this, why he posted these 95 theses. And at the time that he was out and about and he was looking and seeing all the different people that were coming in and, and doing these things, he noticed a friar by the name of Johann Tetzel. He made a name for himself by being that indulgent salesman that was going city to city, town to town, saying, here are the indulgences, get your people out. And he actually had a jingle, believe it or not. If we could post that jingle up. And the jingle is, and this is roughly translated because it was in German at the time, but this is the best that they could do to make it rhyme because a jingle usually rhymes. <clears throat> it states, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Do you see this? What they're doing? How they're twisting things so that you could give money and then save yourself or save or save someone that is in purgatory? I mean, just the twisting of the scripture itself is blasphemous, let alone the extortion of the people's monies, because you know that they're they're not just they probably weren't even trying to convince only the rich, but many of the poor people that they knew that they would fall into this because they're not as educated, right? Back in that day, you didn't have money, you didn't have an education, you probably couldn't even read. That is extortion. That is taking advantage of your fellow neighbor who you're supposed to love. And this is what led, as Martin Luther saw this, he said, this can't be. And he wrote his 95 thesis and he posted it on the door. And he also sent it to a, a, another uh, priest. And this is what is on October 31st, 1517, as he posted that 95 thesis on the church doors. <clears throat> and these theses were really uh, written as propositions 
that were to be argued in a formal academic disputation. This wasn't just something that he posted on there so that everybody could read and it could get out everywhere and then every, the whole world knew. He was more challenging them, saying, we need to discuss this because this is not right. But many people saw it, and many people, especially with the new printing press that was now able to copy and, and just distribute in such a mass and quick way, this was distributed to pretty much the entire German world, and it created such an upheaval. And that's what began this Protestant Reformation. And these two theses that are... Out of the 95, there's two specific ones where it speaks about these indulgences that we're just going to briefly mention. Thesis number 27, they preach man who say that soon as the penny jingles into the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. And thesis 28, it is certain that when the penny jingles into the money box, gain and avarice can be increased but the result of the intercession of the church is in the power of God alone. Only God can intercede for the church. This was the disputation that brought about the Protestant Reformation. So I have titled my sermon, The Two Pivotal, Pivotal, Pivotal Issues of the Protestant Reformation. And these two pivotal issues are the justification by faith alone, as our brother mentioned earlier, and sola scriptura. How do we know that we're saved? How do we know? Because the scriptures have been revealed to us. That is the word of God. But then how are we saved? By faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's go to Galatians 2.16 that will give us a rough and quick um, summary of what justification by faith alone is. Paul states, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That should be enough. But he keeps on going, right? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. I think that's extremely explicit that it's stating your works although they are great and they are loving and it's what God commands us to do in obedience. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by Christ, by that faith that you have in Christ that is given to you. Because if it's a faith that comes from within, it's a work. If it's you saying, I choose Christ, that's a work. You are saved by the grace through faith in the true Christ. 
So what is a quick definition of justification? This is my definition, so it's not an academic or scholar uh, definition, but I think it gets to the point. It is a declaration of righteousness. To inherit the kingdom of God, you need to be righteous. And let me tell you, and most of you know, we are not righteous. Not by a long shot. Not by a universe space between us and God. And that's a lot. Go look and see how big the universe is. We really don't know, but it's huge. It's massive. That is the difference between us and God. And we need that to get there. How are we supposed to do that? It's impossible. Praise be to God that he has done it for us. What is the object of this faith that you are to be saved by, justified by? The object of our faith is Christ. So as we have faith in Christ, it needs to be the true Christ. It can't be a form of a Christ. It can't be a Christ that you imagine, that you invented. It has to be what's revealed. How are we supposed to know that God sent his son? I look at nature, I don't see it. How are we supposed to know that this son of God incarnated into this world and lived a perfect life? I wouldn't know if it wasn't revealed to me. It has to be the true Christ. It can't be something that you invent. And unfortunately, there are people and cults who invent a Jesus Christ even when they have the revealed scriptures. So we know that the true Christ is God and is the Son of God, is Lord, is King. He's the second person of the Trinity. And he has two natures, and that's just a brief overview. He took, he is God who has a nature, the deity of God, who took also the nature of man. He didn't become man and leave God, his deity. He became man and he took on two natures. That's why he could suffer and take affliction and understand us in that way. And he could be the sacrifice for us. But he never stopped being God or this universe wouldn't exist anymore. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3 states, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't understand how 
the Jehovah's Witnesses can read this and not see that Jesus Christ is God. But then again, maybe it has, it's the Holy Spirit is, has to reveal it even intellectually. It, it, they can't get it. This is the Jesus Christ that we have faith in. What does it also say in the same chapter, verses 8 through 12? And listen to these words. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What more do you need right there? Of the Son, he says, O God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, and there is an extension, so it would be the same as saying, and of the Son, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. How is that not a description of God to the Son? How can you look and read that? And see something different. This is what was going on back then. Is that they were not revealing all these things to the people. Because not everybody had a Bible in their hands. Not everybody could go home and say, you know, i got to look up to see if that reference was true. This is how you deceive people. When you don't give them the whole truth. So, that leads into what that term was used in the sola of the first pivotal issue. It's called sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. It is faith alone that justifies you. Again, from Galatians 2.16, the, the second section of that verse, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that is reiterated by Paul in Romans, as most people believe that Galatians was one of his first letters, and Romans came later. It states in Romans 3.20, which we had in our uh, sermon series, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Can't get any more explicit than that. Your works, as much as they are commanded, are not enough. They are but filthy rags to the Lord. We need perfection. We need true righteousness. And that is only attained by our God, Jesus Christ. And this faith that saves 
is not a dead faith. It is a living faith. As James puts it in his book, on, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith, that faith without works, can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Can't get any more explicit than that, right? This faith, and, and, and listen to my words very carefully because it sounds a certain way when you first hear it, but hear me out. The faith that you are saved by, that you are justif justified by, that's a living faith, has true works. So you are saved by faith alone that does not come alone. It comes with works. This is necessary. So that's why I say listen to my words carefully. Works are necessary to be justified. But why are they necessary? They're necessary because your faith, that is the only thing that justifies you, must come with works. Good works. I hope everyone understands good works. <laughs> Not bad works or evil works. Good works. Works are necessary. They're a necessary consequence, a fruit of a living faith. And they assure us because then we know, oh, wow, like I really want to go do this. Like this, these works are justifying it to me that my faith is true, it's alive. It is not my own faith. See, my own faith would be dead. Those works would not come. But the faith that is given to me by Christ, that is given to us, that is a living faith. And again, as I reiterated earlier, this was being veiled and kept from the people. I can't say for sure that the Roman Catholic Church at that specific time did not believe this. But when they were pushed on it, they said no. They said it's by works also. You are justified by faith and works also. That's why they had the whole system and everything and still to this day. If I'm not mistaken, they still believe in purgatory. But the scriptures don't, don't teach that. They were veiling this from the people. That's why that second pivotal issue is sola scriptura, the revealed scriptures. Listen to Martin Luther's words as he was on trial at the Diet of Worms about uh, four years later after he posted those 95 theses. Unless I am overcome with testimonies from Scripture or with evident reasons, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, since they have often erred and contradicted one another. I am overcome by the Scripture text 
which I have adduced, and my conscience is bound by God's word. That's a powerful statement to say that our consciences, our whole being is bound by the word of God. So this Sola Scriptura teaches that the final authority is God's word. And why is it the final authority? Because it's God's word. It's the breathed out scriptures as we will see a little later. It's not just inventions of man. It is breathed out by God. And if you believe that, that should be your standard. That should be what you live by, your rule. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And this should sound familiar to you because it was also spoken about by Jesus. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man lives by every word, not just the red letters, not just the gospels, not just what Jesus said, not just what Paul said, the entire scriptures. The whole scriptures are the word of God. Psalm 138 Verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Exalted above all things. If God is above and he's number one in everything, that means his word too. You can't just say, oh yeah, God, oh he's my number one, and then not follow what he says. That doesn't go with this verse, and with many verses. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 17. Most famous verses to teach us what the scriptures is. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness? No, that can't be. Really, Paul? Are you sure? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Oh, we are supposed to have good works, and we're supposed to be equipped. How are we equipped? What do we use as the rule? as the standard that God breathed scriptures. 
and to show what Peter states in 2 Peter chapter 1 on how sure we are of this word. He states, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So much in there. But this word is fully confirmed. This is what you go to. And notice how it's, it, he uses an analogy to as a lamp shining a dark place. If you walk into a dark place and you don't shine a light, here a lamp, back then they used lamps, but we can even use our phones now. What, what's going to happen? We're not going to know what's there. We are in complete darkness. So we need to be illumined and we need to illuminate our path. That is what the scriptures does. It illuminates. It is a lamp to our feet. It is what we walk by and through because without it, we don't know where we're going. That is Sola Scriptura. That is what was being taken away. If you used to go to a Roman Catholic church, and there might be exceptions, but how many times did you hear them tell you, go to the, go to the scriptures, check to see if what I'm telling you is correct. Again, there might be exceptions, but for the most part, they don't do that. And cults, they won't do that. And then when you take them to the scriptures, they have some type of twisting of it. As we've continually encountered at our, at our local Walmart, uh, the, the mother of God cult that continues to walk around. And every time we talk to them about it, it's like once we mention something, they just they dart off. They don't even want to talk to us. They have all their, the scriptures that they want. And then when you tell them and you talk to them about other scriptures, oh, no, no, no you can believe whatever you want. And they just want to take off. Let's go to the scriptures. Let's see what it says. Let's go to the whole counsel of God. Not just one verse that you want to either take out of context or it might mean something at that time or, you know, there could be so many different things because we believe that we need to also, when we read the scriptures, know what we're reading. We're not going to read poetry and say to ourselves, oh, this is, this is a historical account and you can't look at it as poetry when it's poetry. I mean, you can just easily see that it's poetry. That is the point of learning how to read the scriptures. And because of this Protestant Reformation, and of course the printing press, we saw the availability of the word of God go forth to all the nations. As is quoted by R.C. Sproul here in the history of the Reformation, in a short time, 
the Reformation swept through Germany, but did not stop there. Aided by the translation of the Bible in other nations, the reform spread to the Huguenots in France, to Scotland, England, Switzerland, Hungary, and Holland. Ulrich Zwingli led the Reformation movement in Switzerland, John Knox in Scotland, and John Calvin among the French Protestants. If this Protestant Reformation would not have happened, okay, and we're speaking in human terms, if this Reformation would not have happened, would they have continued to trans? Would they have translated the scriptures for us to read? No, we would have had to learn Latin because actually that the major translation of the day was the Latin Vulgate. And then if you were lucky to go to a school and learn Hebrew and Greek, yeah, maybe you could read the scrolls that were kept somewhere where you had to go and who knows what to get to actually see them. The scriptures weren't available to you. And look at us now. I have it on my phone. I have it physically. We can listen to it. So many, uh, uh, so many um, languages. I can have it in Spanish. I still have it in uh, some Bibles in Spanish for whenever I'm around Spanish speakers. I have it in English. If I need to, I can go to the Hebrew and the Greek online. I don't, I don't have them physically, but I can go online. The availability, what we have today, we need to thank this Protestant Reformation. And of course, ultimately thank our Lord because he decreed this to happen. So what are our reflections from this sermon for our daily practice? I have three that I'm going to go through. Number one, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Those that think that they contribute to their salvation by choosing, by doing something, works, whatever it may be. Let me tell you something, it's even worse than that. Not only do you not contribute anything to your salvation, you contributed the whole reason why Christ died on the cross for you. When Christ was nailed to the cross and they were shouting at him, they were making fun of him, mocking him. And who knows what else they did. I'm sure they, they also spit and maybe even some threw a few things here and there. That should have been us. That should have been us. And when you nail him on the cross with your sin, what you're doing is, let's say for instance, I'll use myself as an example. I was a major drunk. And when my sin was nailed to that cross, what it was doing is it was calling Jesus Christ a drunk. How blasphemous is that? The most perfect, the most sweet and tender, yet stern and stood his ground because he was God. And my sin declared him a drunk and a blasphemer and all my sins put together. What he did for us, we could never repay. And we need to be on our knees 
thanking the Lord that He took that for us. Which leads to my second one. Christ is your only Savior. Not yourself, not your parents, not the church, not the mother God that they want to bring up. It is Christ alone. And it is not an invented Christ. It is not a Christ of your imagination. It is not the Christ that you continually see uh, in the world when they talk about him, this hippie Christ, you know, that says, yeah, I love everybody. It doesn't matter what you, what you do. It is a Christ of the scriptures, the son of God. He is God. And number three, my final point, scripture is life. Read it. I just spoke about the availability of the word, how people did not have scriptures in their hands accessible 24-7. You bet that when they got that, they wanted to read it. Look at the Puritans. Go back. They didn't have TV. They didn't have their, their social media. They didn't have all these things. They had the word. And that's what they wanted to read. Scripture is life. I kind of took that as from a, from a, a little phrase that I would hear uh, growing up in, in, uh, in the basketball circles. Is basketball is life. Like that's everything to you. Well, no, it's not. Scripture is life. Read it. Do you adore the scriptures? Because it is the word of God. You want to listen to God? Read the scriptures. And if you want to listen to it audibly, get an audio book of it. Do you adore the scriptures? I want to play a video from people in China who couldn't get access to a Bible, and they finally got access. Look at their reaction. Go ahead and play it. Can you imagine that? How powerful that is? The first time I ever saw that was a few years ago. And it made me tear up. And I looked at myself, convicted, saying, do I do that to my scriptures? To the scriptures that I have in my hand? I see it every day, so it's not as intense. But do you love the scriptures? This is the word of God. If God were to say, Jesus Christ, his glorified body is going to be at this place. You have 
a few hours to go and talk to him. You're going to listen to him audibly. Would we go? Of course we would go. And you know how many people would go? Billions. We probably wouldn't even get a chance. Maybe if they put it on a speaker. Let me tell you something. Words are right here. And they don't change. Love the scriptures. Scripture is life. Read it. Let's learn from the Protestant Reformation. They wanted to veil how you were saved. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Christ. And you want to take, you don't want to give us access to the Bible. Well, now we have it. Now we know. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray. How powerful, Lord, to see that video. To see the love that people have for your scriptures. I confess that I do not have that same love like they do. I need to, you need to give that to me, Lord. Make me appreciate your word more. Make me want it. Make me thirst for it. Lord, it is your words that I want to hear that soothe my soul, that give me peace, that give me comfort, even through the trials and even through the good times. It is your word that keeps me going until I see you face to face. And that is for all of us here, Lord. Give us that love of your word. Continue to remind us and teach us, Lord, that you and you alone have saved us. And it was not from us. You have been merciful. We were on the way to destruction and you pulled us out and we didn't even have a clue. And now that we know, we look back and we go, wow, how merciful you are, Lord. Why? Why? It's incomprehensible that you love us so much. But I sure thank you, Lord. And I am grateful. And we all come together to worship you because we're grateful and thankful. And as we worship you once again here through the songs, please, Lord, this is our expression of love. May it be a sweet aroma to you. For all these things we pray in the precious name of your glorious and amazing Son that died on the cross for our sins. Amen.